morning, Trailview Church. Would you stand as we read God's Word? Today we're reading in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 through 9. It says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when he sa they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so that they also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Not only you shall solemnly warn them and show them all the ways, the king who shall reign over them. This is the word of the Lord. Dear God, you can have a seat, Trailview. Good morning. <clears throat> I'm Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new here, I'm excited for today. We are moving into week three of our series in Advent, the story of redemption. And I'm super excited to do this, guys, with you. Um, we began our series looking at the promise of a conqueror to come and the new life that, that he would bring. And Pastor Derek brought to our attention this, this waiting expectation that began with this promise given to the woman Eve in the garden, starting at the very beginning. We began with this waiting expectation that it would wait heavily upon people. They would be expecting this child to be born, this, this coming conqueror, and how that just was passed on and on, this expectation of whose child would it be. And um, The next week, we looked at how God provided the sacrifice for Abraham and Isaac, looking at this story where Abraham is taking Isaac up as the sacrifice, and God provided for the lamb. And so we are looking now into the manger, and instead of just seeing infant Jesus, we're now looking into the face of the conqueror to come who brings new life, the promised sacrifice of the lamb for our sins. And today we're going to look at um, the promised king. Now, I'm just going to let you guys know, I love history. I'm one of those weirdies. I apologize. Um, but I really do. I can geek out over it really quickly. And today we're going over just a small bit of the story of Israel, just 1,500 years. It's not that big of a deal. Um, but I'm just so excited because we're, we're walking along this story, God's story of redemption, of taking his people and rescuing them and providing them with a new life and sending the Savior. And all that culminates in the birth of Jesus. And there's this huge, long time of waiting. And so we left off the story with Isaac and Abraham last week. And I want to kind of give us a pretty big bird's eye view of the whole nation of Israel, all the people of God, and how they move forward with this expectation of a conqueror who will come, or this expectation that, that there, will be, there will be one who is the promised sacrifice, the lamb for them. And now we're moving on to this next part, looking into the manger of the promised king. And so just like uh, week one, uh, I want to briefly begin at the garden. So uh, you guys enjoy, feel free, feel free to enjoy Feel free to enjoy the history of our, of, our, of our adopted family. It's okay. It's okay to enjoy this. So uh, in the beginning, uh, in this good garden, God creates and appoints humans, Adam and Eve, to be kings and queens over God's creation. He gives them this ability. And the question was whether or not they are going to do things by 
God's rule or they're going to do things by their rule. And unfortunately, we know how this story unfolds, right? Um, they choose to do things their own ways and by being deceived by the serpent. And in that moment, well, it just starts a, an incredible downward spiral. And so they're exiled out of this good and perfect garden kingdom that God has created into and die in this dangerous wilderness. Now from here, humanity begins spreading really quickly. And um, when adults are living to like the age of 900, it's kind of easy to see how things got populated quickly. It's a lot of time to do stuff. No, you're not following me. You are. Okay, good. Um, so they kept growing, they kept growing. And uh, uh, pretty much they also kept redefining whose kingdom to follow. See, Adam and Eve didn't want to follow God's kingdom in the garden kingdom. And, and this is continuing to happen with people. They're frustrated. They keep thinking that they know what is right. Sound familiar? The, the, the knowledge of, of good and evil, and they're redefining these things. And so they're creating their own kingdom rather than serving the king that's in front of them. So they, they keep growing, and they keep building cities built on violence and oppression. And all of this finally leads to one huge city called Babylon, and it's terrible. It is a place where people have exalted themselves to the place of God. They're putting themselves on the throne now. And this is the place where we kind of see, we're starting to see a pattern, and this main conflict plot of the Bible played out. And it's this right here. God wants to bless this world and rule it through humans. But at the same time, uh, humans are the problem. And so thankfully, in the midst of this very frustrating moment, uh, God's solution is kind of revealed that we need a new kind of human. God promises that this new kind of human will come, one who will not give in to the serpent and his lies, and we'll carry things forward. So I just, there we are. That's, that's getting us up to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, okay? So that's where we are. So in the city of Ablon, we pick up the story with Abraham and his wife named Sarah. And God calls down to Abraham and says, hey, I want you to leave this place, and you're going to go to another place. I'm not even going to tell you where it is. And Abraham goes. And it's a garden-like, see the similarity there? It's a garden-like land where he goes. It's very fertile and fruitful and flowing with milk and honey. You guys know that reference a lot. And so God sends them there, and there we follow for three generations. We follow Abraham, we follow his son Isaac, and we follow Jacob. And after that, we follow the 12 sons of Jacob, which become the patriarchs of the nation of Israel. There's 12 tribes. Technically, there's some, it doesn't matter. Um, so but let me just tell you, at this point, things are, hopes are very high. Things are looking pretty good. Abraham, this incredible man of faith. Isaac, his son, and Jacob, and it, things are looking fantastic. Uh, but soon we read their story and, and see their seriously destructive and dysfunctional family, despite the fact that they are courageous champions of faith. Uh, they're messed up. They lie. They cheat. They almost kill each other. And uh, not to be too crude here, but the sex scandals could like read the headlines of just anything in today's world. And we shouldn't be shocked because the garden story is helping us to expect this. We saw Adam and Eve. We saw what they did. They had every need met perfectly, yet they still didn't trust God enough. They chose to do it their own way. And redefining what is good and then what is evil and creating their own kingdoms is just this cyclical pattern that keeps on going on and on and on. So we have this family of Jacob. We're looking at 70 souls total. Give me, give me an ish in there, about 70 souls total. And over the next 400 years, um, 
through Joseph, the second to youngest son, the whole 70 are going to be moved into Egypt. Over the next 400 years, they will populate to about over 2 million people. 70. 2 million. You guys are not following the procreation math that's happening here? Over 400 years. And in the meantime, they also will become enslaved by the Egyptians. So much, in fact, they grow so much, in fact, that there are purges from Pharaoh. There are purges from the Egyptians to keep them in check so that they don't lose power and control. But we'll look at that here in a little bit. So 400 years of slavery and oppression under the control of the, of the Egyptians. And Moses enters the story. You guys know Moses. Moses is a Hebrew, adopted by the Egyptian royalty. And he's used by God to rescue his people and deliver them out of the hands of Pharaoh. They leave Egypt God leads all the Israelites out, all those millions of people moving out. They get, he leads them to this mountain, Mount Sinai, where God meets with his people. And he creates this new relationship with them. He establishes this covenant with them. And you have the law given to the people for the first time. You guys know that the Ten Commandments come down. The Ten Commandments turn into 613 laws for them to follow. Now, they follow these laws so that they might become a new kind of people a new kind of people that will, to the best of their ability, represent God to the rest of the world. Not to say no, not to make them feel bad, but God establishes this kingdom rules through his law with a covenant to Moses, helping people follow them so that if they do, they might represent God in the best way possible. Moses brokers this whole deal because he's awesome, and, but their story continues and the Israelites fail. You know, it wasn't long after Moses came down, like they were already worshiping an entirely new idol. It didn't take long at all. And the rebellion continues, and it continues, and it continues. And eventually Moses rebels as well. So you have this whole story of, of God redeeming his people out of Egypt through Moses into this new promised land. And just before they get across there, Moses dies. So that's sad. And, uh, and then Joshua takes over. I know, that, I know this is a bird's eye view. We're just following the story. Joshua takes over. They're looking at this incredible leadership of Moses. He was fantastic. He was the guy they were hoping for. They called him a king of sorts. They called him a prophet. They called him a priest. He was the package. Yes, we want Moses. And people loved Joshua who took his place. They said because he was just like Moses. Hey, this guy's just like Moses. This is going to go well. So Joshua takes over actually leads the people of Israel into the promised land. They go into the land, they conquer it, they take possession of the land. So now you have, remember those 12 sons of Jacob? Well, now we have the 12 tribes of Israel now occupying and taking possession of their each little land. So you have these 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. Joshua also charged the nation of Israel to remember the laws that God had given them. It was a reminder. The rebelliousness was off the charts. People were quickly running and worshiping other gods. They were trying so hard to become like all the other nations next to them, and they just forgot. You ever forget? I forgot. However, Joshua in Joshua 9, he eventually fails as well, and fails as well, 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 and at this point of Joshua's failure, you start to see this pretty depressing decline, get worse. And, you know, just like Moses and the garden story anticipated. And we enter into what I think is just the worst book to read of the Bible. 
give me, give me some, some leeway on the word worse. But we get into the book of Judges, and I'm skipping things. I'm, we're not, remember, bird's eye view. Don't be upset if you're like, oh, there's this, Ruth is in there too. I know Ruth is in there. Uh, but the, the book of Judges actually begins with the death of Joshua. Completely, Joshua dies, and this book details, chronicles, the entire and absolute failure of the nation of Israel. And, and before Israel had any kings, the tribes of Israel had, they were governed by these judges. Now, when I say judges, don't think courtroom. That's what we're all thinking. You're probably thinking like English with the curls and the gavels. No, leave that. Think more like a regional political military leaders. Think like a tribal chieftain. Remember, there's the 12 tribes. They all make up the nation of Israel. There's a leader within each one. That kind. They're, they're ruled, each one, by these, by these judges. And so, and by the way, let me just say this. If you haven't read Judges, it's disturbing. It is super disturbing. It's gruesomely violent, and it's just flat-out awful. So there's that. But it walks through more of these moral failures of these tribes of Israel. It walks through poor leadership that ultimately lead the people of God looking just like all the nations around them. Remember God's promises? Like, don't forget, we're moving fast. Remember God's promises? He gave them the laws of Moses so that they would be this new kind of people that would represent him to the world. The promise that God gave to Abraham right after he was not willing to hold back his son Isaac was he would prosper. This is the Brandon version. It's a paraphrase. He would prosper Abraham's family and through them that they would be a blessing to all nations. Like These are the promises, and here we are looking at just horrible idolatry, self-centeredness, and people still continuing the same problem of creating their own kingdoms rather than serving the one that they have in front of them. So you see in the book of Judges these seven repetitive cycles. It, it's frustrating. Seven different times you see this cycle these, these, the 12 tribes of Israel go to this, and it's detailed, every one of them, and it goes like this. The Israelites sin, so one of the tribes of the nations has some, some massive sin. God lets them in their sin be oppressed or taken over by another nation. They will eventually repent of their sins. A judge will be raised up within that tribe, and then they will finally have a very short-lived uh, time of peace. And then it repeats seven different times. And before you think the judges are like good guys, they're garbage. They're horrible people. These are not people who are after God. I mean, one close. But most of them are just terrible. And it starts from the, the best of them, and it gets, goes down to the worst. And so you end all the way from Othniel to Samson. And Samson is just, no. Like, no one would choose him outside of the fact that the Holy Spirit used these imperfect people to do his perfect will. So you see these six judges, and we hear about them. They just go from bad to worse. And the reason that this happens is the nation of Israel has completely fallen away from God. They have forgotten the character of God. They've forgotten the king that they had with him, who he is. The whole book of Judges is a super disturbing story, and it serves as a warning. There is a lot of value in reading this disturbing story. It's a sobering explanation of the human condition, and it ultimately points out the need for God's grace to send a king who will rescue his people. At the end of Judges, we see this key line repeated. In fact, you see it multiple times, and it even ends the whole book. It says, in those days, Israel had no king, and they did what was right in their own eyes. Now, just to let you know this, 
Judges was written after the fact that it happened. So these are the scribes and prophets looking back at what had happened, and they're like, yeah, in those days, Israel had no king, and people were just doing what was right in their eyes. Like They say it multiple times, but this wonderful line sets up a perfect primed and ripe moment for a king to enter into the story. Now we officially moved into the book of Samuel. Uh, so we enter into this time. It's totally ripe and prime. The book of uh, Samuel begins with these horribly declining, ultra-decadent in a bad way times of the nations of Israel. And Samuel is called in the midst of this to be a prophet. Now, I, there's, there are so many incredible things I'm leaving out, and I'm just going to throw this one in there because I think it's just fascinating. Uh, but like Samuel gets called a prophet, and like the Philistines are like the ultra bad guys of, of the Israelites. And so one of the things happens, the Philistines come in the midst of all the judges. The Philistines come in, in Israel's sin. They take the Ark of the Covenant as like a winning prize because the, the, the Israelites just trotted the ark out there like it was going to do all their battles for them, even though they weren't obeying God. And God was like, not how I work. And so the, 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 the Philistines took this with them. And then God, supernaturally, using Samuel just to pray, pray through this, sends plagues upon the Philistines because they have the ark. And the Philistines are like, we don't want this mess. And they bring it back to, I just find it absolutely fascinating. God's like, no, that's fine. Um, anyways, <clears throat> you're welcome for that. But at the end of this time, Samuel becomes his prophet. As Samuel gets old, he has two sons, and they're also judges in some of the regions. But the problem is his two sons are just like the rest of Israel. They're ultra corrupt. They're super self-serving. And, and honestly, the people have had enough. And this is where we begin our scripture today. So like um, in 1 Samuel 8 and 9, all the elders of Israel, they gathered around and they're like, we're done. They've just experienced and lived through, by the way, I think it's 400 and I have it down here. Don't skip, don't skip. Um, all the elders gather around. They're really frustrated and they, they come to Samuel and they say, look, enough's enough. Your sons are terrible people. You're old. They don't follow in your ways. We're done. We want something new. We want a king. See, like all those other nations out there, the ones that are coming and oppressing us and taking us over, we want a king like they have. We want someone to go out and fight our battles for us, to unite us as a, as a nation. We want someone to do that. And it's interesting, you know, Samuel gets perturbed. He's like, this is strange. Your motivation's all wrong. And he takes it to God, and God's like, listen, you can give them a king. It's not you they're rejecting. It's me. I'm their king, and they're rejecting me as king. So the short of the story is, is that God says, God tells Samuel to go ahead and do that. The judges ruled over Israel 410 years. That seven cyclical thing I was telling you about of horrible mayhem and destruction, 410 years. You know how old our nation is? Not that old. Ever since they entered the promised land, Israel has been under constant attack from other nations. And passed along from the beginning is this promise that this conqueror or a promised one would come and save and rescue God's people. And they truly have been, a been through a super tough history with all these warring nations around them and a consistent rebellion against God. So the nation of Israel sees the prophet Samuel his own age. Sons are, are just garbage. It doesn't want them. They fell them just like the other judges. We want something different. And finally, they get this king. This is what would bring about these promises. This is what would bring about the promises that were given to them long ago, what would fulfill the hope they've held on to from the original promises that God gave to Abraham, that God gave to Noah, that God gave in the garden, that God gave to Moses. But see how Samuel doesn't really like this request of theirs. 
Remember the displeasing part? It's really important. It's important for us to remember because it's going to play into you and I as we continue the story of redemption now. Remember, he takes that to God. God explains again this whole, it's not you they've rejected. It's me that they've rejected as their king. This is the issue. This is the very same problem that we've seen in God's people from the very beginning, from the garden. We've seen the same issue over and over, that God's people are in a constant state of jockeying for position for kingdom rights. Now, doesn't having a big picture view of the people of God just frustrate you? I mean, I, I'll just be honest with you. When I'm reading this story and I was making these notes, I'm like, come on. Like, how, how could you? You guys are idiots. Like, you just saw. Like, your grandparents, like, did the whole walk through the Red Sea, and yet you're like, how do you? I mean, the, 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 the tornado's a fire. Like, well, how are you? How does this happen? It's really frustrating. Didn't you just witness the miraculous in your life? How can you be so, how can you doubt his kingdom? And I know you all usually think something along those lines too, but uh, then I do some kind of remembering of my own. I do some remembering and how much work and energy and effort I've put into making my kingdom known and supreme in my life. And no, I don't, I don't call it my kingdom. You probably don't call it your kingdom too. If you do, that's an ultra red flag. <laughs> just, just go ahead and make a note of that. But it looks like every fresh coat of paint that makes the outside of my castle look good. It's in every purchase that I make to keep up with the Joneses, not either the Joneses family that are in here, but Joneses in general. It's in every social media post that I make to let every other kingdom know how well my kingdom is doing. It's in the small things that take up so much of my devotion. It's in the satisfaction and peace I get from something I do with my own hands, with my own means, and my own imagination. It's the things I care about that seek the approval of the world. It's in the conversations I have or don't have because I'm trying to obtain my kingdom's image. It's what my bank account would say, what I truly worship. It's what a timetable of my every second of every day says I care about most. It's what a transcript of every thought I have says is most important to me. Me. It's my kingdom. I'm just like the Israelites. I've been saved just like the Israelites have been. Yet I forget so often, a bit more lighthearted approach to that, anyone who has been around kids for more than 15 seconds <laughs> can tell you that humans are hardwired to look out for number one. And just this week alone, uh, you're going to laugh at this, but I actually counted so that we can just be clear. I've had 50 plus many battles with my children. 50. From what to eat, when to eat, how to eat, when to change, what to change into, how to talk, how not to talk, how to voice frustration, how not to share frustration with your fists, how to not smell like poo. 
And, and here's the funny part. Not one of my kids is coming to me with some philosophical argument about how father, a healthy father choice in this moment would be to allow me to have 17 suckers before I go to bed. That's what Jesus would do. No, they don't care. They're battling for the crown of the king. They're battling for the right to sit on the throne of their life. They're battling for the right to rule and reign, and it's their laws they want to achieve, not mine. And I get it, because so do I. You will change your clothes. You will not smell like poo. I, it's my house. We get that, because it's our kingdom. And this is the reality of life on this side of heaven. So do you. So do I. You and I, in our sin, we are constantly warring against the king and for the right to sit on the throne. And just as Samuel recognizes that their motivation for wanting their own king are way off base, God says to give them the king they ask for. But what else does he say in verse 9? Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. God wants them to be warned of what's going to happen. You want a king? Okay, you can have a king. Hey, Samuel, tell them what they're asking for. Tell them, tell them what they're going to get. Your kids ever come up to you with something and ask you for something, and you're like, you have no clue. Daddy, I want more responsibility. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let me just tell you what you're asking for. Here's what Samuel says. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord. This is verse 10. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and he'll point them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and he'll give them to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants, your female servants, and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not really like the campaign slogan I'd be going for if I was like trying to be king. Hey, I'm going to take a tenth of your chariots and I'm going to take your cars and I'm going to use it for my purse. Like that sounds like, no. No one, who would vote for that? I, I, no one wants that. But how do they respond? No, we will have a king. It's, their response is just ridiculous. But they're like, no, that's exactly what we want. Give us that. And Samuel gives nation, the nation of Israel this warning, a warning of what will reign true for every king that sits upon the throne. So we get our season of kings. It's what the people have been longing for, hoping for. We're finally to this point where this king is coming, this, this conqueror, this, this expectation, this provider, this promised lamb, lamb, sacrificial lamb, and now they're to the point we finally get what we want, and it's Saul. And Saul looks every bit the part of the king. He's tall, like head and shoulders taller than everyone else. It says he's handsome beyond comparison, and he comes from wealth. Lead us. 
Saul begins a long line of kings to reign over Israel, and only a few of them have high points. In fact, most of them have nothing but really bad spots. <clears throat> Saul starts off with some pretty good victories over the Philistines, and uh, things are looking pretty good, but it doesn't take long at all for Saul to start doing things for his kingdom. He starts redefining the rules of the kingdom. He, gets up ending, he in, ends up getting rejected because he chose to do what's pleasing in the sight of people and not the Lord. And in the midst of this eventual rejection, we see the rise of David. And I, I don't know what goes through your heart or, or head when you're thinking of King David. But when I hear King David, I always hear the, oh man, after God's own heart kind of stuff. And, but I, I can't think of anything else but like his horrible decisions. Like, I don't know what that says about me. But the Lord calls David to be king over Israel, and his reign, for sure, is definitely on the highlight reel. If Saul was known as the people's choice to be king, David is known as God's choice for the king. Saul was a man after people's own hearts. David was a man after God's own heart. But David's story reads like this adventure, action, drama, romance novel kind of stuff going on. It's crazy. It's an incredible story. He's anointed as king. By, by the prophet Samuel. And even as he's anointed, he serves as a musician for King Saul. There's a, there's, a, there's a weird occupation change. Then he slays Goliath with his trusty slingshot. He's honored and brought into high esteem. Uh, it's, by the way, it's a sling, not a slingshot. That was a joke. You're okay to laugh. Um, high, he's brought into high esteem with Saul's court, Saul's court because he slays Goliath. Even Saul's son, Jonathan, acknowledges that, hey, the king is this guy. Saul, in his jealousness, seeks to murder David and spends a lot, a lot of the book of 1 and 2 Samuel chasing him around to murder him. Saul eventually ends up falling on his own sword in shame. David takes his rightfully anointed place as the king of Israel. Now, here's the thing that David does that the people were hoping for. He unites all the tribes of Israel under one king. That finally happens under, under David's rule. Can you imagine what people were thinking? This is it. This is the one. This is the one we've been hoping for. This is the expectation. It's finally here. He actually became so well known by the other nations surrounding all of Israel that they, their kings would come to David for peace because they didn't want to lose in battle against him. Hey, we're going to just come ahead of time and say, we're just going to be part of your kingdom. Cool. Thanks. Don't kill us. Okay. Like, that's kind of how those things went down. But David also, however, chose to serve himself as king he pursues and takes another man's wife. He has her husband sent to the front line so that he's murdered in battle. We see David's consequence play out in an absolute terrible downfall of his family. This is the king they wanted, right? The nation of Israel wanted a king. Here you go, here's your king. He's going to take your wife. He's going to have you killed. Then after that, you have this fourfold destruction. The child that he has with Bathsheba dies. David's daughter, Tamar, is defiled. His son, Amon, was killed in revenge for defiling his daughter, Tamar. Then his son, Absalom, is killed, and the kingdom of David, which was unified, becomes separated. All this wonderful stuff, and now it's all right back down. David regains his throne. However, the hope that King David would be the king that the people had hoped for. It's already dwindling quite a bit. 
Solomon, his son, would take the throne after him, would be known for two main things, for wisdom and his wealth. However, his wickedness is not neglected, for as it is often in the case of the Bible, what begins with divine glory ends in human shame. And with the span of just these three starts of the kings, we see the Israelites go from longing for this king to unite them and lead them as one to the complete division of the nation of Israel after King Solomon's death. And just so you know, it doesn't stop there. I'll, start, I'll stop with the history lesson here. But it doesn't stop there. There are kings that come after them. And it just goes downhill. The nation is split. You have kings of Israel and you have kings of the tribe of Judah. I'm just telling you. It gets worse, and it gets worse, and it gets worse. And I want you to remember the warning that the prophet Samuel gave the elders of Israel. Because God knew this would happen. God knew that in their rebellion, the king that they were asking for wouldn't satisfy the one, the hope, the expectation of the king they've been longing for in a long time. In the middle of God knowing that the king and the people wanted would never satisfy, God gives an incredible promise of a new king that will come and his kingdom will be established forever. This is in 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13. And this is the Lord. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish this throne of his kingdom forever. That's a shortened version of this full covenant covenantal promise that God gives King David. And he is promising right here that through you the king is coming. Your house will stay forever. And that king that people are hoping for, I'm promising right now it's coming. And it's coming through your line. But something that is often missed here that I think we forget about, and I don't want us to, the promise to David doesn't just mean that God's going to protect the line of David only for the sake of the Israelites. Because then we would be forgetting the promise that God gave to Abraham. God told Abraham that I will multiply your people and they will be a blessing for all nations, not just the nation of Israel. So this continued promise is being pushed through. It's not going to be canceled or brought in thinner. It's just being more specialized. God is now saying, hey, I'm also going to fulfill that promise through Abraham with the same promise I'm giving you, David. It's just that through your line will not only a kingdom be established, but through your line that kingdom being established will bless all nations. And though it would take a while for that king to come, when he did come, he would be known as a king right from the start. So there some, summarizes our history lesson. I know that is a lot to follow along with, but here's what I want you guys to put in your head. There is almost 1,000 years in between Abraham and David. 1,000 years. There's about 500 years in between David and Jesus. It's ish. It's ish in there, but that's pretty close. 1,500 years of waiting. I I'm still ticked that Avatar 2 is not out. Are you tired of waiting? 1,500 years is a long time to wait. I would forget I would probably give up. I'm not proclaiming that. I'm just saying I could see how that would happen. 
hundred years of people longing and waiting for the arrival of a king that would rule over them, that would fight for them, that would sacrifice for them. There's a long time to wait for a promise to be fulfilled. It's a long time to pass the hope on to your children. I know things are bad right now, but wait, there's a king coming. In the opening chapter of the first book of the New Testament is one of the most incredibly significant and awfully boring genealogies. Have you guys actually read the first page of, of, of Matthew? Maybe. Some of you are like, no, nah, I'll skip over that mess. So-and-so begat the Hosephat and Jumim and talked to them, and his mama had a, and there was a cow in there. And No, you move on pretty quick. But it's an incredible genealogy. My, my mother is an incredibly bright person. She's very, very smart. She has unleashed the full strength of her wisdom into the genealogy of our family. And I mean, like, she should be a poster child for what people can find because she's found some pretty incredible things. Um, uh, we found out that some of our uh, ancestors came over on the Mayflower. We got a connection there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also that many were killed in bar fights. <laughs> and, so, uh, and then uh, some who didn't die in bar fights came and settled in Texas when it was a republic and then died in a bar fight. <laughs> See a theme going on here. And interestingly, there were more than 10 who spent lots of time in mental institutes. So you're welcome. Uh, and then back up, because we even have some time to some, somehow some ties to Benjamin Franklin. And what's really cool is my wife's family is related to Clyde of Bonnie and Clyde. So you got us on, in your church. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know what you want to do with that. But yeah, in, interesting stuff. But none of that matters. Nothing, none, none of that is worth value or weight at all. In this first bit of chapter one of Matthew, we have the most impressive of genealogies, one that not only connects to King David, but it gives evidence for the promised Messiah. In the Gospel of Luke, even, we see this birth of the king foretold by the, the angel Gabriel. Luke 1, 26 and 27, it says this, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. This is finally the king that was promised. The genealogy spells it out. 14 generations between David and Jesus being born. Just about 500 years. Gabriel comes down and says, hey, this is it. Through that promise I gave you, the king is coming. It's interesting in this story, moving into the New Testament, moving into the birth of Jesus, that not everyone was thrilled about this coming king. You know, or at least vaguely probably familiar about the, the three wise men who came. They came to Jerusalem. They saw the star. They knew that the, the child who would be born king of the Jews was born. And they came to offer the gifts and worship at his feet. And they go to Jerusalem and they meet with the king there, who's King Herod. And they say, hey, where's this child who's born king of the Jews? And Herod's like, a king of what? I'm, I'm the king. And uh, he flips out. He calls in all the scribes, all the chief priests of the, of the, of the region, and he's like, hey, you got to tell me where this kid's going to be born. And uh, they're like, Bethlehem. And uh, anyway, so she, after that, he, he's not satiated. His, his fears are like elevated, if anything. He even calls in the wise men. He goes, hey, here's the deal. You know that uh, king of the Jews that you guys are trying to find? I all of a sudden too want to worship him. You go find out where he is then report back to me where he is so that I can go and worship with him as well. And they're like, uh-huh. 
They finally go, they find King Jesus, they worship with him, and in a dream, they are told not to go back to Herod because of what Herod wants to do. They end up leaving in another way. What's incredible about this story is that Herod is about to do something that we've seen a lot of. In fact, we've seen it twice, most notably when the Hebrews were still under oppression in Egypt. Pharaoh took and killed all of the newborn males. Herod takes every male two years and under in the entire Bethlehem and surrounding region and has them killed for fear of losing control over his kingdom. This king is not a king I want to follow. I am the king. I don't want to follow someone else's king. Last week, we saw this lamb in the manger. It's not just the infant child. This is the sacrificial lamb in infant Jesus that will pay the sacrifice for mine and your sins. The week before, we saw into the manger and we saw the promised conqueror, one that would conquer sin and bring new life. This week, we see the promised king. The king that was promised through Abraham to bless all the nations through, the king that was promised through David to reign forever in eternity, finally laying in the feeding trough we talked about last week. These promises were answered. That is what we have in the birth of Jesus. But I can't help but wonder how we actually feel about Jesus being king over us. And what I mean is this. It's nice to say, and here's the thing, um, conqueror and is going to restore a new life to me, I'll take that Jesus. Um, sacrificial lamb, going to pay the price for my sins, yep, I'll have him. King over me, Jesus, um, that sounds like a lot of things aren't going to go my way. I'm going to have some ideas and want to talk to management, and that sounds like I won't get that opportunity to do that. There's a truth statement that goes like this. Many want a savior, but few want a king. We are all more than happy to have Jesus rescue us from our mistakes, to pay the price of our sins and redeem us, to beckon us into the family of God. But just as that warning that Samuel gave to the people of Israel, and it tells them about what to expect from a king, you and I also need to know what we should expect about King Jesus being king over us. So let me just say, King Jesus is king over your life. He sits on the throne currently. He cannot be removed. He rules over your life as offensive as that is to your heart. He is the rightful king. He is the king over your singleness, over your marriage, He's the king of your parenting. He's the king over your finances, over your thoughts. He's the king of your relationships, your friendships. He's the king on your sufferings, over your failures, king of your hopes and your future. And he's the king of your salvation. And this list, while clearly putting things in order, it begs us a question to ask of ourselves. And it's the question that you need to ask of you. Are you building your own kingdom or are you serving his? Now, it's hard to give up control. And anyone who says otherwise is also a liar. It's hard to relinquish perceived power over our lives. And it is 
perceived, just to be clear on that. But remember, the Israelites thought the same way. Your frustrations at Adam and Eve, that's the same things and decisions that you're making. Your frustrations over the Israelites of how they could just blindly turn around and choose and worship some other God that's just made up, that's your decision to choose and worship the things of this world or yourself. They thought they knew better than what God had to give them. They thought they knew better, a better way to run a kingdom. Adam and Eve didn't believe that God knew what was best for them. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's family fought like ravenous dogs that have power over each other. Uh, they recently, the recently delivered Hebrews out of Egypt completely disregarded the covenantal rules and worshiped their own God instead of that. The nation of Israel forgot all about who God was. And they went their own way, looking just like all the nations around them. How did that work out for them? When they chose not to trust in his kingship. The truth is every step away from Jesus' kingdom is a step toward destruction, even when you talk yourself out of it. Even when you talk yourself into making something that really is your kingdom. It's a step towards destruction. And every aspect, likewise, of our life that we live under the kingship of Jesus is the best version of life you can hope for. No exceptions. Now, does that mean we're getting our way? No, absolutely not. Because just like the Israelites, just like the children that we talked about earlier, you and I are happy, more than happy to fight for control. So there's going to be a want, a natural bent. The sin inside of us leads us to fighting for control of our own kingdom. And so I think today you should take a really good look into what you let Jesus, have kingship over in your life. Maybe part of you today, when we go into our, our prayer time and reflection, maybe there's a party that needs to spend time confessing. Confessing the fact that you are trying to shove him out of the throne. You're creating your own makeshift throne. You're divvying up responsibilities. Yeah, you can have this part, but I'm going to do all of this over here. So this year, as you are looking forward to celebrating the birth of Jesus, when you look into the manger, let us be reminded that he came to rule over us, every aspect of your life, and his rule is good. I want to end our message today with the closing comment of Paul Tripp that he gave uh, in an Advent devotional. It's a bit long, so I didn't want to put it up on, on there, but I, it, he's a smart man, and these are incredibly Holy Spirit-inspired words, and I think they speak to us well today. If Jesus came to be conqueror and the lamb, he also had to come to be king. I don't mean a monarch over a specific geographic area. Jesus had to rescue us from our bondage to our little kingdoms of one and usher us into his kingdom of loving authority and forgiving grace. He came to destroy our self-oriented kingdoms and dethrone us as kings and queens over our own lives. In violent grace, he works to destroy every last shred of our allegiance to self-rule in our hearts. In grace, he patiently works with us until we finally understand that truly good rule in our lives is his rule. The baby in the manger came to be king and he would not settle for anything else. That infant was the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he would grow to be a man, a perfect man, 
who would talk again and again about the kingdom he came to establish, but he would do much, much more than just talk. The king would die as a criminal so that criminals against his kingdom would be welcomed into his throne room and live with all the rights and privileges of being members of his royal family. There is an interesting, but sweet, ironic aspect of the biblical story. The king had to die. The king that we willingly love, worship, and serve had to first die. Normally, the death of a conquering king is the end of the story, but this king came to conquer by dying for those over whom he would establish his rule. This is grace. The king died to dethrone kings so that he would be their king forever and ever. No, the baby wasn't wearing a crown and had none of the trappings of royalty, but don't be misled. He came to be king, and his kingship is your salvation. Would you guys join me in prayer? Father, we are so thankful that your son Jesus is worthy to be king over our lives. So thankful that you provide a king over our lives. It is so difficult for us to get out of the same pattern that we have seen your people fall into that we know better. We know what is right. We know what is best for us. So Father, would you meet us right now would you help us to not move away from this truth, this question that we are sitting on right now, that we're struggling to not answer? Father, would you help us come inside and know us and help us to be aware of the ways that we are seeking kingship for ourselves? Father, we confess that we are doing that. Confess that we don't believe that you are good. Confess that we believe that we are better. But we thank you for in light of that sin and in light of that frustration, you have made known to us that you are the king. Will you come and have your way over us? In your son's name we pray. Amen.